Good morning, everybody. Please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. My name is Eric Tonis. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. If you're a visitor, I'm really glad you're here. We love the summer months here at Grace because um, we love them dearly, but the college students head out, a lot of people head out, and you actually get to have conversations and talk to people more than when it's busier. So I love to meet people. I meet so many people here in the summer. I'm glad you're here. I hope you have been encouraged already this morning. We've been preaching through the book of Titus, and it's been so rich and so helpful for us. It's relative to other letters in the New Testament, a tiny little letter written to a church in Crete to the pastor currently of that church named Titus, and the Apostle Paul's encouraging him to grow. And I so believe the Word of God is powerful and active, and God uses it to specifically reach us exactly where we are, as individuals, as a church, to enable us to become the people he's called us to be. So Titus chapter 3 is where we are. As we go to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are a powerful caretaker of our hearts. Lord, we just asked you to take our hearts and seal them for your courts above. We're, we're not good at taking care of our hearts. We are so easily distracted and attracted to things that don't give life. And so would you help us to be drawn to you through your word as the spirit who inspired it works through it now. Help us, Lord, to grow in Christ and closer to you and to one another as we devote ourselves to the scriptures here this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege of singing as we have with hearts set free by the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we're so grateful for what he's done, what you are doing, and we pray your blessing on our remaining time together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 3, we will begin at verse... Eight. Titus 3, 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, that's the conclusion of this book. I must say I'm a bit sad. It's over as I always am every time we preach through a book of the Bible and I feel like it becomes a far better friend than it had been before we preached through it. Um, and so I, I'm sad Titus is over, but boy, it's been a rich study. I'm so thankful for it and all we've learned through reading it, meditating on it, sitting under the preaching of it, those of us who got to preach on it, really internalize these things. Well, Paul's up to some very important things, and, and I want to highlight four. Here's how I want to organize so much we could talk about in this passage this morning. These four things is what I want us to come away with. One, truth matters. Truth matters. Two, unity matters. Unity among the people of God matters. It's the foundation, it's the stage, it's the jumping off point, it's the springboard, it's the backdrop of God's work in this world, our unity. Jesus prayed that we would be unified the way he and his father are unified. It's about as unified as it gets. No conflict, no division, no quarreling, no fighting, no spitefulness, no competition, no Unity. Truth matters and unity matters. Three, um, we need to realize that in addition to truth and unity, behavior matters. How we live, how we act, what we say, how we spend our money, how we spend our so-called leisure time. I don't actually think that exists, but... Um, but how we spend spare time, I don't think that exists either. No, no time is spare. How do we spend it? How do we invest it? Our behavior matters. What we do, there's got to be a fundamental connection between what we believe or say we believe and how we live on a daily basis. Not perfectly until heaven, but in a growing way. In an a way that demonstrates integrity between belief and behavior. The Bible doesn't have a category for truth that doesn't invade daily behavior. It also doesn't have a category for behavior that isn't grounded in truth. So truth matters, unity matters, behavior matters, and finally, people matter. People matter. It's all worked out, all these things. The truth, the unity, the behavior is all worked out in the midst of people. Yes, us. This Interesting group here. <laughs> it's all worked out in the midst of real people. So, number one, truth matters. Uh, verse eight pounds away at that, doesn't it? This saying is trustworthy. Uh, it's words of truth. It's faithful words. That's what this is getting at here. What words? What saying? What are you talking about? Well, Great example of why we need to make sure it's in context, like Randy helpfully reminded us last week. I think he primarily means here the words he just finished saying in verses four through seven. Now, I think it includes, in a sense, the whole book, the chapter we've been in, chapter three, but most specifically, verses four through seven, so we better read them. This is the saying, the teaching the words, the words that are worthy of your trust. What are they? Verse 4 of chapter 3. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, right? He saved us. That means nothing to you if you didn't think you needed saving. What did you need saving from? Your sin, yourself, your self-righteousness, every evil thing you've ever thought or done or the things you should have done you didn't. He saves us from that through Christ, through his goodness and loving kindness, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because he is so astoundingly loving. The loving kindness, this covenant committed love of our God and Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We just read twice, be zealous for good works. But when we do, we better be careful to ground it in these verses that say we're not saved by those good works. They are a necessary outflow of that salvation you've experienced. But he just said we're not saved through good works. We're not saved through righteousness our own but through the righteousness the works of Christ but according to his own mercy how by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly do you see how extravagantly generous God is please don't ever think he's stingy he pours it out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, being made righteous, being one who is now considered having done everything according to God's righteous law in light of that new identity I have in Christ, then what do I do? Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you hear how sure and sufficient and complete and satisfactory is God for us in Christ? We were singing this morning that God is for us. What does that even mean? Do you believe God's for you? How is he for you? Well, the Bible teaches the primary way God is for you is in loving you so much, he sent his son, Jesus, the eternal divine son who became a human being for us and took on the difficulty of life in this fallen world and obeyed every time we disobeyed, told the truth every time we lied, paid the penalty of our sin, which is death on a cross, so we could be declared righteous and forgiven and now have the assurance of eternal life. So everything we just read about being zealous for good works, about seeking a unity in truth, about loving people has got to be grounded in the good news of God for us in Christ. If not, it could be really dangerous teaching. It could lead us into thinking that we are saved through our good works. It could lead us into thinking that we need to accomplish our own righteousness before God for him to ever accept us. And that is completely wrong. See, so we've got to keep this in its proper order. This saying, this gospel truth is trustworthy and true. Count on it, bank on it, depend on it, bet the ranch on it. Whatever image you want. This is a trustworthy saying. It matters. He's saying you can take it to the bank. This much is clear. He's saying I'll tell you one thing for sure. Jesus is God's answer to all our greatest problems and questions. And so 
We ground everything in the gospel. So that truth matters. I want you to realize that this, this good works that our lives should display is gospel good works. It's living out what naturally happens when the truth of verses four through seven get more embedded in our souls. And you could say that every time we gather as God's people like this, our primary goal is to get the truth of God for us in Christ deeper into our souls so it's more clearly reflected in our daily living. That's what this is about, the gospel going deeper. It's like every time we gather in grace groups or as a family around the word or as a church like this, anytime we gather, what the goal for us is is that the gospel goes deeper, that it penetrates more deeply, that enables us to see our marriages and our parenting and our, our neighborhood and our community and the world and the tragedies we're reading about in the news and the great good things that are going on in the world all the time that don't get quite as much attention in the news because apparently it doesn't sell, but there's a lot good going on too and so we see it all in light of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So truth matters, but it's a particular kind of truth that matters. Did you see it? It's truth that is embraced by those who, verse eight, believe in God. See, before we get to devoting ourselves to good works, we realize that there is truth that is centered on who God is. And we realize that truth really matters. And Titus is being called here to contradict, to refute, to go against the untrustworthy teachings of people who are having an influence in the church there. And so it's not just practical realities that we're to live out. It's practical realities we're to live out grounded in the truth of the good news for us in Jesus Christ. You know, I, I bet most of you would say you believe the Bible's the word of God. Actually, last I read, about 80% of Americans think the Bible's God's word. Most of them just don't read it or know it or obey it. Uh, but... Most of you probably, even more sitting in church, imagine what the statistics are, would say it's, it's God's word. But it's one thing to say we believe the Bible is inspired by God through human authors and therefore has authority. But I want to I just highlight the importance of the clarity of the Bible. This is a growing concern I have. It's not enough to say you believe the Bible's the word of God or that it has authority. If those things are true and the Bible's not clear in what it says or sufficient in what it says, it's really not authoritative. And who really cares if God inspired it? I'm noticing more and more, even those who say they believe the Bible's the word of God, will, will deal with it in a way like it's incredibly hard to understand. Like what it seems to be saying can't be what it's really saying, especially if what it's saying goes against popular opinion in our culture. It's amazing how quickly the Bible becomes so obscure and hard to understand and you need to understand all these other things to get it right. Well, the Bible's written for normal people. You know, the Bible's written for fishermen and carpenters and, and people who don't have advanced degrees and linguistics and Greco-Roman backgrounds. And so it's written by mostly and for mostly people who can understand it just by reading it. The whole idea 
of the Reformation, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary, one of the main things driving that was the belief that God's word is clear. That's why a farmer should have a Bible that he can read for himself. And so the Bible's powerful and truth matters. And the beauty of all of this is so important. You know, I, I moonlight as a professor at Biola University. And um, my identity here at Grace is, is by far my primary identity as a, as a minister, as a member of Grace. I love the world of ideas that I live in at Biola, but I would lose my mind if that were the only world I ran in. I love the local church. You can talk about stuff forever in the academy. It's kind of what you do. In the local church, you got to make some decisions. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? <laughs> How are we going to do this? How's this going to work? And that's when it gets messy, and that's when arguments start, and that's when it gets real. That's why I love the local church. We going to baptize babies or not? Yes or no? Now let's figure it out, right? So there's a beauty. You can talk about that one forever in the academy, right? What are we going to do? The local church is the one who asks that question. So I love that. And that's when truth hits the streets. See, the local church has, a, a, has difficulty because we've actually got to decide on some things. How are we going to do this together? with differences of opinion. And, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, evidence in the world that, that Christians argue a lot. Well, it's because we care about truth and we got to do something about it. The goal, though, is to argue in a way that builds up and doesn't tear down with a high priority on truth. And so we realize that truth matters. That's what he tells us. And so believe truth as if it matters and is real and is trustworthy and preach it. He says in verse 8b, insist on these things. Emphatically preach them. Don't just make suggestions, Titus. Don't just offer your opinion, Titus. Preach as if you're actually understanding and proclaiming the very word of God that is intended to change us. It's amazing how much, even in my very short lifetime, I've watched preaching style change. More and more, it's got to be so conversational. Hey, we're just talking. No, I want to I be talking to you as a human to humans. I don't want to be pretentious or put on a show or be an orator. But preaching the word of God should have authority. It shouldn't just be about cardigans and stools and lattes swapping ideas, Right? I, nothing wrong with a cardigan. I got a couple nice ones myself. But you know what I'm saying? It, it's just, it's got to be so, you know, what do you think sort of thing? But we've got the clear, powerful, authoritative word of God as his people. So let's preach it, as Spurgeon said, as dying men to dying men. Like it's the answers we desperately need. Because it is giving us the answers we desperately need. So truth really matters. So preach. Uh, Walt Harris turned me on to a book recently by a guy named Mahoney called The Idol of Our Age. And he's convinced, and I think he's really on to something, that the idol of our age is what he calls compassion without truth. And I, I do, I love the, the growing concern for the marginalized, the oppressed, the voiceless, the, um, 
this, this tolerance, this kindness, the compassion, especially my students and younger people, I just seem so concerned about these things. But is it grounded in truth or just some sort of benign affirmation of whatever? Is it grounded in truth? Is it grounded in gospel truth for those who believe in the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not just God really vaguely defined and truth really vaguely defined, basically determined by what the whims of our current cultural ideas would dictate, but the eternal word of God given to us in scripturated in the Bible. That's the question. Is it truth grounded in scripture? Is it compassion grounded in scripture? So truth matters too, unity matters. So we're to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And what's an enemy of truth and good works? It's division. It's divisiveness. It's separation needlessly among the people of God. Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they're unprofitable. That typifies what these teachers were doing. Now, it's interesting. Paul does not get very specific about the teaching he's seeking to refute and get them away from. And I actually think what he's doing there is demonstrating how unprofitable even this debate would be. He doesn't get into the details of this because he doesn't think it's worth it. I mean, how much time do we want to spend talking about things that aren't going to be fruitful in the long run? He's saying, look, these constant controversies that keep arising among you here in Crete and in the church in our culture as well about things that aren't fruitful, things that don't lead to true good works grounded in the gospel that advance the gospel, don't get caught up in them. He won't even get caught up in them in the letter. He's not saying, now let me, let me dive into a discussion about these genealogies and these controversies. He, he, he won't even go there. I think he's actually demonstrating that I'm not going to waste my time. It's, it's not worth it. I'm not going there. I'm not going to write a book on this. I have a prof that I had. I won't say his name. His, his nickname was Mad Dog. And uh, Mad Dog was great. I loved having him. But he came into class one day and he says, Anybody, you, any of you know this book, The Bible Code? Apparently this book had just come out that adds up the numerical equivalent of the Greek letters and finds all of these things in them that you know, Barack Obama is in the Old Testament. And, and, uh, and he said, oh, apparently millions of Christians are reading this book thinking it's unlocking all the interpretive keys of the Bible. I didn't even know about it until Time Magazine called me this morning and wanted my opinion. And I don't have an opinion because I haven't read the book because it doesn't deserve to be read. But now I have to read it so I can tell Time Magazine what I think about it. And I'm not happy about it. Would Christians stop getting caught up in all of this meaning stuff. Now, it's interesting that we, we're that way, aren't we? We like, oh, this is interesting. I find the Bible a bit boring, but this is fascinating. You know, I have a member of my family who's so convinced of this preacher she listens to on the television, not my immediate family. Um, uh, this, pre- this preacher she listens to who is always getting these amazing insights into the animals in the Bible and what contemporary countries each of them represents. Eric, do you know the eagle is the United States? I don't know that, Mom. Uh, um, 
But where do you get that? And what if I think the eagle's Russia? Or it used to say the bear was the Soviet Union, Mom, which doesn't exist anymore. She doesn't even have a computer, so she won't listen to this. But I love my mother dearly, but I was just back visiting her. It slipped out. I didn't mean to. You'd love my mom. She's wonderful. Um, But... But it's amazing the things we get enamored by when the clear teaching of the Bible's right there all the time, wanting to invade our lives, but we just don't find it all that interesting. But did you hear about this new book, this new thing, this new secret? That, oh, it's, it's hidden behind the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's, that's Nicolas Cage. Anyway, it, it's, all, it's all very bizarre, but we're fascinated by it. And he's saying, don't waste your time. What are you doing? Why are you wasting your time and all this stuff that doesn't matter? And you know what? Preachers can make a living and authors can make a living in this. Don't be a sucker. (laughs) Just read the Bible. Understand what it says. Be in a church that preaches the Bible according to what it says as clearly as the preachers possibly can and trust the word of God. Truth matters and unity matters and avoid errors, in other words. Stupid speculations, he's saying. Verses nine through 11, right? These foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, they're unprofitable, they're worthless. Don't, Don't get caught up in them. They, they lack substance. They don't deserve your time and energy and effort and arguments and divisions. And these quarrels are, are these battles that destroy the peace among God's people. They're unprofitable. They're worthless. They're just, Paul saying, they're blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. None of it's adding up to anything. Now, I really need to pause here because some of you are loving this for the wrong reason, I bet. Some of you are loving it and saying, yeah, let's just all get along. Let's stop arguing about it. Christians just argue too much. We, we have too many divisions in the church. But don't forget point one. Truth matters. So unity without truth is not Christian unity. Truth without unity is not what God's after either. Jesus prayed that we'd be unified the way he and the Father are unified. That's how much he wants unity, but never independent of truth. Look, the letter of Titus is creating division. It's doing what Paul commands us to do, to guard the good deposit of faith, to contend for the faith once delivered, right? There is a place for arguing. There is a place for divisions. Paul says people, look what he says about people who won't stop this fruitlessness. What do we do with them? As for a person who stirs up division, verse 10, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Separate from him, divide over him, argue with him, try to convince him, try to persuade him, and if he doesn't listen, avoid him. Walk around him. Yeah, shun. Don't include him in on the fellowship like you would if he weren't divisive. It's a form of church discipline he's being called to. So what's he saying? This is fascinating. He's saying, cause division for the sake of unity. I want a unity based in truth that's gospel advancing and God glorifying. So there are going to be times where you draw lines and some people don't get included. 
because I care so much about this teaching that is destroying families and the church and will inhibit the advance of the gospel and the glory of God. I care so much about that unity that I don't want a fake unity where we all just get along in the absence of truth. So, so this compassion without unity, this, without truth, this unity without truth is not what we're talking about. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. How often do you hear people talk about that verse? Oh, he came to bring peace. But not just some vague peace on earth, goodwill to men, but no peace on earth, goodwill to men for those on whom his favor rests. He says, I come to bring a sword. And this sword, this divider I'm bringing, it's going to cause divisions in families between those who love me and those who don't. And you know, believers through the centuries have had to say goodbye to their families because they were disowned when they followed Jesus. He brings division in families. And so we need to realize there, there is a truth that, that is a kind of unity that it leads to that we need to look for. Not just unified, let's not argue about anything, let's not really care about truth for the sake of unity. No, there's a tension here. And we need to work it out. And we need to work it out in a way that knows what's worth arguing about and what isn't. What's worth putting in a statement of belief as a church and what isn't? What's worth carrying out church discipline over and what isn't? And that's what he's talking about, a form of church discipline. Where at least Titus, or probably the leaders, and probably to some degree the whole church, is going to relate to these divisive people who are distracting the church and dividing the church over false teaching and empty teaching. They're going to have a different kind of relationship now. There's going to be a not business as usual sort of distance now. And it, he doesn't give us details in what this looks like, but churches need to carry out church discipline. And we can't do it well if we don't have a commitment to it and we don't have a good understanding of what sorts of issues in the teaching of the Bible and morally in our lives require putting our foot down and planting a flag and saying, no, this, this can't go on. We need to know the difference. Now, it's amazing to me how seldom we sit back and say, yeah, how do I decide what's really important and what isn't? What we typically do is say, well, my church growing up made a big deal out of this, or my tradition did, or man, did my family make a big deal out of this, or this is really important to me viscerally and my guts. But those aren't good, way to make, good ways to make these decisions. First, I think, um, somebody asked me for this later. This is actually my book, Life's Biggest Questions. But... I think it's important to think about different categories. There are absolutes of the Christian faith, like verses four through seven, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work in his life and death on a cross, that the Bible's the authoritative word of God, inspired by him, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is coming back one day, these grand and glorious truths that define the Christian faith. If we don't have these, we're not Christians, we're just fakers, we're just posers. But second, I think it's important to think about this area of convictions. There are convictions that may not centrally define Christianity, but are important enough to divide over. That you even will choose a church based on, or a ministry you align yourself with based upon, or who you marry. There, there are, it's not enough that somebody's a Christian. You need to have similar enough convictions so you can actually end up choosing a church without World War IV happening. Right? And so uh, convictions are things like 
um, your view of baptism, your view of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Certain end times issues can fall in the convictions category. And it's important we get these kinds of things figured out and realize that even within these categories, there are some convictions closer to absolutes than others. So you can have difference of convictions that you think have some basis in the Bible, but won't necessarily choose a church or a spouse based on it. But then there's the area of opinions that you do think have some biblical basis, but not enough for you to not agree to disagree and stay at a church or marry someone or be part of a ministry. And then I think it's important to think about questions, things you realize have not been decided in the Bible, so you don't have a view on it. It remains a question for you. And so it's very important we realize the differing degrees of different teaching and don't just base it on our gut or our traditions or our experiences. Here are eight ways I propose we go about doing this. How clear is this in the Bible? How relevant is it to the character of God? Now, everything in the Bible is, to some degree, related to the character of God. Some things more significantly than others. How relevant is this to the essence of the gospel? You want to see Paul get ticked off, mess with the gospel of salvation by faith alone. Read Galatians and see what I'm talking about. How frequently is this taught in the Bible? Now, if it's taught once, we believe it and obey it. But there's something to be said for the weight of a doctrine if it's something that occurs throughout the Bible. How does it affect other doctrines? All doctrine affects other doctrines, some more than others. What have believers in the past and currently believed about this? Is this a completely new idea Christians haven't thought of before? Well, it's highly likely it's wrong if that's the case. Now, this doesn't mean those in the minority can't be right sometimes, like I think they were in the Reformation, but there's a lot to be said for what believers generally have and do believe about something. How does this affect personal and church life? Some things affect church and personal life immediately, directly, and we need to get serious about them. And finally, I would add pressure from culture to compromise. Sometimes we need to put more weight on something because the tidal wave of our society is going against it. So we plant a flag on it. We make a statement on it. And these are the ways we need to do this. Now, a couple more points, then we'll move on. It's important to realize that throughout the history of the church, we tend to be on these, this pendulum swing. I have a friend who keeps a pendulum right on his desk to think, where am I on the pendulum swing of things? And, and realize there have been times in the history of the church where we've tended to turn opinions and convictions and questions into absolutes. You know, opinions into convictions, convictions into absolutes. And we've had strong views on playing cards and jazz music. <laughs> now, there are reasons for that. I, I love those folks. But, um, but we've got to back up and say, wait, is this clear? Is it, what's going on here? But if I had to say where generally we are now in the church, especially among younger people, I think the pendulum has swung to increasingly turning absolutes into opinions and convictions into questions, and, and insisting on these things is not very popular. It's easier to get along if you go in that direction. So we don't want to do either. We, we want to have a clarity about this. We should spend a night talking about where we think things belong. So in opinions, I would put worship style. I would put certain ways of running things in the church. You know, we're having our Lord's Supper service 
tonight, love it. We do it once a month and we do it in the morning sometimes. Oh, those are judgment calls. We're just, we got some opinions about these things, but, but they're not to the level of serious convictions and absolutes. So um, and working through these things is important. So then when we do, we can know where we need to really put our, our foot down and we need to draw lines and at times even carry out church discipline if these vital convictions or absolutes are being compromised. We could talk a lot about that, but we'll leave it there. So unity matters and working through those things will help us. And some things matter more than others. That's why we need perspective. And he says these, these divisive people are stirring up families. Verse 10, they're, they're these um, heretikos, these, these heretikos. Let me, you know, I, let me just pause here. Most of us have never taken a class on how to interpret the Bible or how to do theology. So when, when there's an opportunity to do this, I just want to do it really quickly. Um, heretikos is the word... Paul uses to describe these guys. And you heard that. And some of you may have said, oh, that sounds like the word heretic. That sounds like the word heretic. And it does. And we actually can trace a connection between the word heretic in English and this word here. So it's like you say, oh, so these are heretics. Well, it's tempting to do that. And you can actually understand why it would end up there. But that's actually a problem. It's it's a wrong way of interpreting the Bible because what you don't want to do is take what a word became way later and just dump it into the first century use of it. That's what Paul's using here. There's a fancy word for it, you know, semantic anachronism. You, you, You take something from another time in history and dump it into a previous time in history. And it happens a lot, and we're really impressed when preachers do it. Like one of them is... The, the word for cheerful, and God loves a cheerful giver, is this hylos, uh, hylios, this word that we uh, do get the word hilarious from. So preach, I've, I've heard it dozens of times. So we should be hilarious givers. It's just, it's just not, it's, it's, it's an inappropriate imposition. Or um, the word for power in Greek is dunamis, and we do get the word much later, dynamite from dunamis. So preachers say that we are the, the gospel is the dynamite of God to salvation. Well, that's, that's imposing a, a much later use in, in the past. And it's actually, do you think Paul had dynamite in mind? First of all, it didn't exist. And second of, second of all, dynamite destroys things, right? I don't think that's helpful, even though it, oh, he knows Greek. I better listen to him. No, um, (laughs) heard a seminary prophet say one time, anytime a preacher says, in the Greek it says, he says, plug your ears for the next two minutes, because that's when all kinds of damage happens, right? So so I I just wanted to point that out, because this would be a great opportunity for me to seem really impressive and say, you don't know the word here is heretic it, it's it's actually not so um it's actually a really good translation so this is why we call our english good translations the word of god there you go so uh truth matters unity matters or we are to shun or avoid for the point of restoration as we saw previously in titus we honor the name of christ and the welfare of the flock actually more than the good of the individual look is it ever good for the individual to be excluded from the fellowship well, maybe, it actually might be if, if they feel the absence of it. 
and grow in their longing and realization they've strayed. Maybe it even could be good for the individual. But even if you're not sure that's the case, you still have the honor of the name of Christ and the good of the flock as a greater priority. So you say, no, avoid him. Put him outside. It's what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Have nothing to do, very similar, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. They breed quarrels. Have nothing to do with them. That's what he says. These people are warped. And so the response is confrontation. He's saying create division for the sake of unity. Now it's so important what we do it about, how we go about it, why we go about it, but we need to go about it. Three, behavior matters. Truth matters, unity matters, behavior matters. The Bible is intensely concerned that we translate all of the vertical relationship with God into horizontal relationship with other people. How can you love a God you can't see when you don't love people you do see, John says. We are to translate our love for God into our love for people. That's what the gospel does in gospel people. Behavior matters. That's what verse 8 so clearly says. I want those who are grounded in the trustworthy saying of the good news of Jesus Christ to be careful, intentional, to devote themselves to good works. He ends the letter by repeating that, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Look at the false teachers' lives betray their faultiness. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity. That's what he's doing for us. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. Todd Wilson, a friend of mine, wrote a book about the book of Titus called Zealous for Good Works. He thought the title of the book about Titus deserved that, and I think he's right. That's where this all needs to lead. All this truth we absorb in our minds and that affects us internally needs to show up in the way we live. And I can't tell you how much I love this church and how many good works there are to see all over the place all the time. I'm so grateful as a leader for all these 20 years here. I've had a front row seat to the good works that are happening all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard something's happened in someone's life, and I do some research to find out uh, what's going on. How are they doing? Are they being taken care of? And there are five families that have already been to their house with food. Doing child care. <laughs> Helping out in any way possible. Meeting the needs of people, do, doing uh, uh, respite care and foster care and adoption and caring for orphans and, and moving toward the lonely. And I know you may be sitting there saying, I'm lonely, who's moving toward me? You know, Spurgeon was asked one time, what do I do if I'm lonely and depressed? And he said, harness the horses and spread manure. <laughs> Get to work. Get to work. Be, be engaged in the work of the ministry and the people of God. When, when we get that inward mentality, we tend to segregate ourselves from the people of God and we disconnect from the very resources that will care for us. And so we are people who move toward one another. 
the food bank ministry for years has cared for people in our community without asking questions, giving them groceries for the week, praying for them, preaching the gospel to them. So many ways grace groups care for each other. And, and that's how it should be. Zealous for good works, intentional about this. I love the, ver- the ver- verbiage he uses. Um, be careful to be this way, devoted to good works. Be intentional, be strategic, be intent on this. Make sure this is happening in your lives. Don't let it be random acts of kindness. That's fine, I guess. But we almost think that randomness is better than intentional, better than planned, budgeted for, strategic. Get up in the morning saying, Lord, how can I be zealous for good works today? How can I meet real needs in the lives of real people today? And so these things that we want to be excellent and profitable, where our behavior and our attitudes are reflecting the gospel transformation that's taken place in our lives, starting in our homes, in our church, and spreading to our community and the world as we partner with Grace Partners all around the world. As we consider, think carefully how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. You know, in the midst of all the bad news, there's always good news you can find. I found it in a speech given yesterday at an induction ceremony for the NFL, the National Football League Hall of Fame. Um, uh, Kevin Maway, the second Polynesian, first Hawaiian ever inducted into the NFL Football Hall of Fame. Now, I knew he was a center, but I was so impressed when he got up and told his story. He actually has the best maybe the best high school mascot ever, the Leesville, Louisiana Wampus Cat. (laughs) Doesn't even exist. They just made it up. Um, Here's how he started his induction ceremony speech. You ready? I'm a born-again believer through the resurrection and blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, bam. Um, now, I get weary of, I want to thank God for this song that I just got this award for that is actually opposed to everything he's for, <laughs> but I thank God for it. Or, or it just seems so glib, and mad, but he just starts off that way. And then he tells a story of his big brother who he couldn't have been closer to. He played in college at Louisiana State with, and I actually have a picture of him. There he is. Yeah. You don't want to hit by, you do not want to be hit by him. No. <laughs> Um, listen to what he says. I humbly recognize that apart from the grace and blessing of God, I would not be here tonight. And then he tells a story of his, his older brother who he was playing college football with. He was in his third year in the NFL and his brother was killed by a drunk driver. And his brother was a very strong Christian. Kevin was not. And it woke him up. And he said, I wasn't living for what really mattered. And listen to what he says. Oh, and same time his brother was born, uh, killed, his, son, his first child was born. And he says this. I love this. He said this yesterday. I, in, in the midst of all of this human worship, he says this. I would not be here tonight if not for the grace and blessing of God. In the extreme sorrow of my brother's death, followed by the great joy of the birth of my son, Listen, my focus turned to faith as I learned of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and the purpose of living in his name. 
whether it be through, listen, encouragement, wisdom, or resources. And 16 years in the NFL will give you lots of resources, and he's used them wisely. I did some research. He said, I learned that God can use one person to change the lives of hundreds and even thousands. My journey of football, listen, became a platform for changing lives and sharing the gospel. Is that beautiful? Oh, millions of dollars and all this fame. And what does he say? I'm going to use this platform of football for the advance of the gospel and for changing lives. What's your platform? What's your vocation? What has God got on your plate? And our vocations are not just how we make money. It's a job God has for us. And we all have jobs as, as employees or employers, as neighbors, as sons and daughters, as mothers and fathers, as husbands and wives, as friends, as roommates. How are you doing with those vocations and ministry that God wants you to use as a platform to change lives and advance the gospel? Here's what I want you to notice. I, I read up on this guy. He wasn't the most talented guy by far. He was actually, they said, very undersized for a center in the NFL at only 6'4", 290, which is actually undersized for a center in the NFL. But they said he, he worked at his craft and he became a technician at what he did. He was always ready, always prepared, always fit when camp came doing everything he could. Look, your witness for Christ, your platform for Christ starts with what just what doing as a good steward what God has on your plate. It's not some grand display that you Instagram about. It's just doing what God has on your plate. Maybe that's being a faithful light for Christ in a hospital room as you fight cancer. Maybe... Maybe with a neighbor who is just as hard to live next as possible. Maybe with a spouse who's about to har- as hard to live with as possible. Or, or kids or parents who drive you crazy. Or uh, a future that's uncertain. How are you moving into whatever God's got on your life? Are you moving into it with a gospel-transformed ability to be a platform for the advance of the gospel in your life? See, whatever it is God has on our plates, whatever it is, no matter what. Paul was in prison, and he didn't say, well, fine, there goes my platform. Look, it's not about famous and rich. That, that's so insignificant to what he was saying in this. We, we, we're faithful to what God has for us, and we seek to be used by him as the gospel transforms us to advance the gospel. And I love how this letter ends. See how it ends? Oh, I got these friends and they're coming, Titus. They're going to relieve you of your duties. And you hand off the ball to them well. And the friends who just delivered the letter, you make sure they go on their journeys taken care of. I love it. He says, you know, take care of Zenos and Apollos. Make sure they go on their journeys with food and clothing and all the supplies they need. He's saying, be zealous for good works right now with the guests you have in your home. It's beautiful. It couldn't be more practical. It couldn't be more real. It couldn't be more daily. And it's as real as it can be. That's why I love the Christian life. It's not some nirvana or enlightenment on a mountaintop or or a pilgrimage somewhere. No, it's daily. Taking up our cross, following Jesus, and marveling at the way he uses us to advance the gospel and glorify his name through our lives. Father, help us to do just that. Help us to be women and men, a church, families, individuals who are 
zealous for good works, devoted to good works, serious about good works, no longer distracted by futility and meaninglessness and untruth, but Lord, motivated by the gospel truth of Jesus for us. And we pray this in his name, amen.